connections that, that Jesus describes it as no person can separate. If he's so strong about this oneness, then it would make sense. He wants this oneness to carry out entirely, all the way through. The example of it, you throw in your, your water, your Kool-Aid, your sugar, and you can't like separate those type of things. If you want to later down the road, you got Kool-Aid. It's what you have. And God's saying, look, in your marriage, in your oneness, your oneness to some level will always be there. There is no smooth separation to your oneness. I was at a football game earlier this year, and uh, they have stretched out one of these big banners. You know how they do, and then the players get all riled up, and they run through this banner. And there was a couple of little kids, maybe coaches' kids, I don't know, little guys that were out on the field. One of the little guys, in his excitement, ran through the banner long before it was ready to be run through. And it came out. And I thought, oh, man, that little kid must feel terrible. Uh, well, then I discovered that the banner was actually a Velcro tear. It was pre-tore. There's Velcro down it, and it's Velcro together. Um, and you can just redo it the whole time. We think our marriage is like that. We think relationships are like that. that we can just kind of take a clean tear, and then we just go on and we Velcro another one to it, and we just go. But it's more like the old school, high school banners that are just a big piece of paper. When you rip it, that's it. it it's over in there. And it's jagged, and it's painful, and you don't just slide another one back together that way. And so this morning, my, my job is really convince you. Convince you on don't divorce. Don't go that route. We're going to talk through in God's word. So if you didn't get a, a sermon note uh, as you got in here this morning, just lift up your hand, Richard, uh, get one to you. Um, and uh, you want to make sure you, you walk through this. Now, there's a couple of things you're not going to see on the screen that I'm going to actually fill in for you uh, up here on this whiteboard. And so we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Can I tell you, first of all, divorce does not care about you. Not in the slightest. Divorce doesn't care if you're like two years in right now and you're just the happiest couple ever. But it was funny to me in watching Jordan and Crystal up here um, because I told them, look, I spent time with you guys. I know how lovey-dovey you are, you know, and uh, you have to really act it out that you're not interested in each other up here um, on this love seat. And uh, they did a little nice job. Um, I appreciate that. Um, Divorce doesn't care about your, your great two years in. Divorce doesn't care if you're 20, 25 years strong and you say you've been married that long. Divorce doesn't care if you bought the dream house and, and you're doing a pretty good job paying off. Divorce doesn't care if you walk in the door and everything's neat and put in place. Divorce doesn't care less if your, if your kids are 4.0 students, um, they're the stars of their sports team or they're acting or whatever. Divorce doesn't care. Divorce will attack and devour and take you over and rip and tear any family that you allow it in. And that's what we're talking about this morning. So my, when I look out here, I'm going to be honest. I'm looking and you're thinking, married couples, you need to hear this this morning. If, now, if you're out there, you're a married couple, and you're like contemplating, as, as Mike and Leslie talked about, separation, I can't live like this forever. I really want you to listen up this morning. But if you're single, and you'll ever one day get married, then you need to file this away and come back to this later in your life and, and ground it and solidify it right now. Here's one of the, the key things that we find in God's scripture. It's found in Malachi 2.16, and it's this. The first point is God hates divorce. This is not my commentary to you this morning. I'm not 
bunch of verses and giving you the overall verse, God says it directly, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. For the abortion of wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, is what he says and how he describes it. God hates this. Now this is a strong word that he uses, the hate word, the hate. He cautions us, actually in scripture, to not hate your brother. That when you hate your brother, then, then really calamity, judgment comes on you for hate. So God's talking pretty strong in this language here when he uses the word hate. Now it would make sense. That if God had designed you like we talked about the last couple of weeks, when we walked through the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and the two different creations account, if you, if you missed that, uh, just go listen and catch up. If God created this oneness and he designed you for this union, if he said you leave mother and dad and you cleave, you become one with your spouse, it would make sense then that God would come out and say, I hate the breakup of what I've created here. I would hate to ever see somebody break up. And I, I hate it. I hate it is what God says there. It would make sense that he would hate that. Now, I want to say like I said the last two weeks. In a group this size, certainly in our day and age and our culture, many of you have divorced, you're remarried, you've got your, your, uh, your, your second or third spouse, maybe you're sitting with them right now, married. Our issue, our desire this morning is not now to say, hey, let's backtrack and talk about your sinful past and how horrible it was and what you did. That's not our interest, to go back to label, to define those type of things. Our interest is now to say, this is the biblical message. As you step forward in life from this day on, look at it from an obedient follower of Jesus Christ and what God would say to us. And so, if you're in that situation, that's what we're talking about this morning. He hates divorce. So if you're Michael Leslie and you're processing some of those things, as God is speaking to them and saying, look, I hate divorce. So let's, let's, let's start making some thoughts on what you need to do to change this marriage, how I designed you, what I need to do. And that's what they did. That's the testimony you heard from them. Now, uh, in my years of ministry, even when I was a youth pastor, even youth would ask me, and they would sometimes say, well, doesn't the Bible say that you divorce though? The, the Bible says that sometimes. And I got to the point after a few years of hearing this question where I'd say, I say, well, you know, you're right. What do you think those situations are that the Bible allows that? That was always an interesting answer to that question. It would range from anything but, you know, uh, my husband or wife cheated on me all the way down to, you know, things like almost to the point where they said we disagree on coffee um, kind of thing. It's amazing the wide span of thoughts people have, even in the church, on reasons God allows someone to be divorced. Well, the truth is, God gives us a very limited pathway to divorce, an extremely limited pathway to divorce. Can I tell you, the phrase that's most popular, 80 plus percent of divorces in America are divorced for this reason, irreconcilable differences is not a biblical model. It's not a biblical word. In fact, you won't find it in God's word anywhere where he says, you know, you just eventually drift apart, or you just, you don't seem to match up anymore, or, you know, he has to 
this coffee, and she likes none of this. Don't show up in God's word. There's this limited pathway that God actually teaches about divorce. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9 says, And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery, unless his wife has been unfaithful. So we find there in Scripture, this is one of several verses where adultery, unfaithfulness, is a key here. Unfaithfulness is something that actually breaks up the marriage and gives permission. It gives the pass to be able to walk out of the marriage. Even in my five years here, and before you start looking around, not here, not here, you're, you're not seeing. I've had two instances here where a husband has been unfaithful in a marriage in, in five years of ministry here when we walk through those type of things. I found that the knee-jerk response of both of those wives was not to leave. The knee-jerk response is, we're going to try to work through this. We're going to try to figure this out, make this work. But God says in his word that this is, this is your opportunity for free pass. This is your opportunity for divorce. Now, my hope would be the exact same, that even in the midst of a sin like that, even in the midst of a violation of trust, such as adultery, that there would be this opportunity to claim God's redemption and jump into that and have the, the proper conversation and counseling to redeem a marriage in that type of situation, in that type of place. But we find this in four other times in Scripture that it says this uh, for the sake of adultery. Now, God also says this interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Starting in verse 10, I want to read it to you this morning. It says this, But for those who are married, I commanded that a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord, a wife must not leave her husband. But if she does leave him, let her remain single, or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Are you catching the oneness there in what is said, what what the passages in Matthew says and what's now Corinthians. And even if you break off your marriage, you can't just run and jump into another one, is what he's saying here. That oneness you had with one somebody else is you take it with you. You take the terror and the brokenness on. The oneness is meant, as we talked about last week, for the long haul. You're seeing that here. Verse 12, now I will speak to the rest of you, though I don't have a direct command of the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he's willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. You catch what's happening there, that if, like we talked about the very first week, if you have this unequally yoked together relationship, you're a Christian, they're not a Christian, a believer, not a believer, and you end up getting married, that the issue of just them not being a believer is not grounds for divorce. You can't just, ah, oh, made a mistake here. Tom Sermon was just so good that week that he's convinced me the error of my ways, so I'm just gonna divorce and start over. And Paul right here says, no, that's not, that's not how it works. Marriage is so, so sacred and that, that oneness still occurred. And as long as that spouse is like, yeah, no, I don't want to break up this marriage because you go to church and I don't, I don't want to break that up. That's where it says, no, you're, you're one with them. You stay with them. Now, are you going to face some obstacles? Potentially, yes. What happens when you start raising your, your kids and 
If you raise it in the church, you raise it in the church alone, how does that type of thing, you, you run into some obstacles and some difficulties there. And Paul says that's not ground for a free pass to just get out and start over. But here's what he says after that. Um, for the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy now. Verse 15. But if a husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. And what he's saying there is, if your non-believing husband or wife says, look, we don't match about this faith thing. This is just, I'm not on board with this. I'm out. And they leave you, grounds for divorce. That's what he says. That's open. Can you see now the limited path God offers in his word for divorce? This limited, limited path. Can I tell you what the stats actually are in your area? You know, that you've probably heard, well, divorce rate's about 50%. It's not much better for Christians in some, in some situations. Uh, stats actually say it's a, a niche higher for Christians, which would baffle us entirely. Uh, the, the truth is, the latest survey that went through the George Barna and the Barna Group, the latest survey in, in looking at all these models, uh, has a diverse, divorce rate currently in the U.S., 2010, at 36%. 36%. Now, you might say right away, like I did this week, that's wonderful. I always thought it was 50%, like half the marriages. Only a third of the marriages now fail. That is just so, that's such good news to us. The divorce rate among Christians is 27%. Now, uh, the Barna group being so connected with the evangelical world, their uh, definition of a born-again Christian was a whole lot stronger than you might get from the Gallup poll or another type of, of poll. And so in their born-again category, I mean, they really solidified that down to evangelical Bible-believing, Jesus Christ-believing Christians, 27%. That sounds a whole lot better than 50%. But if you look at God's Word, and you've never heard 50% before in your life, and then as a Christian you said, despite God's Word that we've talked about all three weeks of this series, one-fourth of all of our Christian marriages are going to end in divorce. One-fourth. Now you might say, well, Tom, even Christians sometimes make mistakes and go have adultery and those type of things. Yes, you know that Christian, in Christian marriages, only like 90% of the time, 8.7% of the time, does those divorces based on adultery. So still a significant percentage of our Christians getting divorced has nothing to do with adultery here. I would tell you a third of all marriages, a fourth of all Christian marriages, I would say we still got some work to do, do we not? We, we still have work to do in this category to understand how God has designed us and designed marriage for us. I'm going to read you a passage and then I'm going to just tell you because it will sound so out of context, but I want to tell you how we'll come back to this in just a moment. If you've got your Bible, Ezekiel 9, this whole passage won't be on your screen, so let me just uh, read this to you. Ezekiel chapter 9, we'll start in verse 1. I'm going to read verse 5 verses uh, to you, and then uh, I'll tell you I'll tell you why, even though it sounds a, a little strange. Then I heard them call out in a loud voice, bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper great gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a, 
a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel went up from above the cherubim when it had, where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side. And he said to him, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the forehead of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. It's a little passage there, right? Um, so these, these, these men with weapons came standing next to the man in, in linen, and their instructions are to go and and throughout Jerusalem put a mark on the forehead of who? Those people who hated the detestable things counter to God that were going on in their culture in the town of Jerusalem. And then when these men with weapons were turned loose, they were told, go throughout the city now, and anyone who doesn't bear that mark that the person of Lenin sent them out killed all those people there. Quite, a, quite an interesting passage, right? Especially in a marriage situation. Um, I'll get back to what we're talking about exactly. If you picture Jerusalem very similar to the U.S. these days, I believe, is that we we have, even as a Christian culture, we have bought into and owned things that are counter to God's word because that is what our culture teaches us and shares with us. In a way, it's like we've kicked up our feet and we've just kind of drifted along with the flow of our culture. And one of the things, and I believe it's one of the key, key things that as Christians we bought into in our culture, and that is that if your relationship's not working, if you're not happy, if things aren't going well, if you're fighting too much, if you're not making enough money and you're stressed at home, it's okay to go ahead and get a divorce and just start over. That's a cultural thing. It's not a biblical thing. It's not how you were designed biblically. It's not God's message, and that's what we talked about here. In fact, five years ago, the Leonards could have sacrificed their marriage had they desired. And they wouldn't know the joy that they have today. In fact, what's scary sometimes is that we actually fall in love with what the pain that divorce can bring over the difficulty of staying in the marriage with the potential of God redeeming them and working out. And we weigh those options and we say, man, this looks so much better to me over here on this side. Can I just walk you through now, and then we're going to see how it fits into this passage. I promise we'll come back to it. I'm going to walk you through a little bit here the ancient language uh, in Hebrew and how they understood what God meant when he said husband and he said wife and how they viewed what God's word actually said. Actually, when we talk first about uh, dad, and you're welcome to draw these. Uh, in, when we talk about dad and mom, there's actually these symbols that they use in the ancient language. So it, it was not quite like we talk today where we have letters that are associated with sounds. It was more like pictures that they would draw. Later that became the Hebrew characters that you might see sometimes Hebrew and recognize it as Hebrew. Uh, but in Bibcon they would they would have actually had these kind of symbols. And the symbol for dad was actually this Aleph, which looked like this. 
Now, I don't know if you can kind of tell by looking at it, but it's actually kind of an ox head. That's the picture uh, of it there. In fact, some of them that have been drawn look, look more like this, um, and that's kind of an ox head that they would draw. Um, and so this signified that strong, the strength. Um, you might say that's not this. No, it was, it was strength was, was what was viewed here. And so the ancient Hebrew, the, the, the symbol, the first symbol for dad would have been strong. Do you know who else has this symbol? It's used to describe, now he's got a lot of symbols. God. Uh, this would have been one of the symbols to describe God, this oxen, this, this powerful strength as well. Guess who else has this symbol? Mom's got it too. Mom, strong as well. Now when you look at it, you might interpret, well, dad's strong in one way, mom's strong in the other. We don't know if we get that or not, but we just know that strength is in both of, of the illustrations of mom and dad in this ancient here, here uh, though, is the other one. It's this beta here, and that is, uh, that stands for like house. The picture is like house. And so the picture of dad, what they understood is strong house, strong uh, overseer of the house or watcher of the house, protector of the house is kind of what they would view dad's role. And, and really traditionally, we would say, yeah, it's kind of similar with what we understand, what we think of dad's role. And then a mom would be this different one that looked like this. And it's where we get the letter M from, actually. It, it comes from this A and B here. This actually is A. And we get this letter M uh, comes from that. You know what this means? Uh, running water there. Or chaotic water. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the chaotic water. What's it really saying there? Not that mom, you bring chaos. You oversee chaos. Now mom's like, oh yeah? All right, I understand. What, what Hebrews got, they got something they, they do from the very beginning. And so you can see how dad, strong watcher of the home, mom, you know, strong overseer of, of the house and all that happens uh, in the home uh, as well there. And so that was like their understanding. That's how it worked for them. So here's the key asking the questions. What did it look like their understanding then of husband and wife. What did that look like in this? And it was actually um, three different symbols that kind of came together to be a husband and to be wife here. Here's the first one. You're familiar with it already. Strong. So the husband had that characteristic of being uh, strong there. Guess who else had that? You guessed it again? Mom had that, or wife had that as well. Strong as well. So you can see right away that sometimes our thought that you know the husband is the strong one, the the wife is kind of the you know submissive weak one. That was not their view there. Um, and so there was strength on one of those. <laughs> Here's the other one. Um, I'll leave the middle open here if I can. It's this symbol here. It looks kind of like a W to there, but it actually becomes an S in their language. And in, yeah, in the Greek, it's where we get our S as well. Um, but if you look at it. Here, um, it kind of looks like teeth, and that was their view of this here, that, that it, was, it was actually like ferocious, um, protector, ferocious type of, of view there. Um, and so those, those were the men, but guess who else has this symbol as well? Mom's got it right there in the, in the middle. And, and if you ever, you know, like take off mama, like go to this, 
be a coach and then like bench mama's kid, you know, you understand right away strong ferociousness, it works in, uh, just like that. That was their view. Here's the interesting thing that was different about marriage than it was just about mom and dad. It was different about husband and wife because there was two more symbols that worked into it. Now this is ancient Hebrews understanding. This is the people that God revealed himself to. This is their understanding. There was this, like this. I don't know, what does that look like to you? Maybe a sideways Y? Um, we'll be right to where we eventually get our letter Y. But it actually, for them, it's a picture of his outstretched arm. This strong arm, strong right arm type of illustration. Um, this was one of the sons of God. It works right into their understanding of husband that there was a symbol of God in there. Now, first, just for a second, guys, if you think, well, see, like that, I'm God of my family. That's not what it means at all. Um, I guarantee you're getting no traction in your marriage with that thinking. But yeah, this God was within this, meaning that in order for you to really understand how a husband operates and, and what a husband is like, you also have to understand the nature of God. You have to understand who God is. That's how they understood, and they viewed it that way. Well, then the wife had another symbol as well, and it looked like this. Now, that looks like a, uh, what a backwards E was or something like that, but, um, or is that the right way to do it? No, backwards, right. Um, <laughs> but this was actually, if you could think of it, it was actually like the picture of a mouth, an open mouth, the chin down, like that, an open mouth. And you know what this is sticking out? It's not a tongue. So why is it not like you? Because your husband says something. That it's breath. The breath coming out. Do you know who else this is a symbol for? It's a symbol for God. Breath. In fact, we find that in the name that we often see as the holy name of God, that name Yahweh, which we think we pronounce correct, um, Yahweh, in Hebrew, we actually find the breath, it shows up twice in those letters. It's a symbol for God here that we find. Guess what else we find in the word Yahweh, the name of God? This Y shows up as well. Do you understand what we're saying here? The ancient Hebrews and their understanding of God, but how God was revealing himself, how God was describing mom and dad and then describing husband and wife. Do you know what we're saying here? This is how we see husband and wife. They are strong. They're protectors. They approach it. They can battle. They have God right in the midst of them. The characteristics of God are built right into husband and wife. Here's the most interesting part. There are some scriptures where it actually talks about a detestable husband, a detestable wife, or a disobedient wife is, 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 the, is the word that, that's used in, in Proverbs. These detestable, disobedient. Guess what word pictures they would use for that? Those right there. The word picture, strong, ferocious, strong, ferocious, because guess what else they understood this to mean in their language, if you take God out of it? Destructive. So they're saying, like, God is right in the midst of husband and wife, but when husband and wife, you know, they're, they're disobedient, they're detestable, they're not following God's plan, guess what they become? They become like this, but instead of this being protective and wonderful at the home, it becomes destructive. This is, this is the ancient Hebrews. Once God revealed himself, this is their understanding. In fact, the Bible was actually translated this way into Hebrew and then 
later for us, eventually got into English, thank the Lord, so that we could actually read it. Understand how strong these symbols were in their understanding. And very early on, they looked at husband and wife and said, if God is in the midst of husband and wife, then it is what I designed it to be. If God is not in the midst of husband and wife, it can be a very powerful, destructive force. Does it start to sound a lot like marriages that entrust themselves to God and marriages that don't entrust themselves to God? This image, this understanding has not really changed for us. I told you I'd come back to this passage that I just read. Can I read you the chapter, or verse 4 and 5 again? He said to them, walk through the streets of Jerusalem and put the mark on the foreheads of all those who weep and sigh because of the detestable sins being committed in their city. Then I heard the Lord say to the other men, follow him through the city and kill everyone whose forehead is not marked. Show no mercy, have no pity there. This mark, lest you get a little confused with the mark of the beast, has nothing to do with that whatsoever here in this passage. This mark is actually known as the, the Tav. It's not the only time it shows up in scripture here. And they had a symbol for that, just the same as the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The symbol for this, anyone hated the detestable sins, anyone that would be saved in that city, otherwise they were put to death. Anyone that would be saved had this mark, the top. And you know what the mark was? This is Old Testament times, remember. That was it. It was a cross. That's the image of, of top. I mean, that makes no sense, doesn't it? This is Old Testament prophecy and the way all the way back, right? Jesus hasn't come, he hasn't died on the cross, and yet the symbol was already there. Symbol's already there. Can I tell you, this passage doesn't necessarily talk about marriage this morning. But when I think about your marriage, if you're struggling and you're fighting with it, and I think about it, I look and say, you know, your, your answer is this mark, this top. Your answer is to say, look, I, I, I'm not in love with our culture's view of marriage and what I should do and how I should do it and what avenues I have available to me. I'm not in love with that at all. I am in love with the Lord and I'm in love with his word. And even if I am confused and baffled and right now I'm hurt by my spouse, I believe in this word. I believe in the redemptive power of this word. And I'm going to hold to it. It is like you're taking the top. And only in that, that top of you, like it is for them, for us today, is this mark of Jesus Christ. It's bringing Jesus to the center and heart of your marriage. In fact, I would tell you this morning that if, if you have a marriage issue, guess what? You don't have a marriage issue. You must like have a Jesus Christ issue, a God issue. And like we talked about before, if, if you take this and you put God at the top here, and there is a you know, husband over here and wife over here, it is not that you have to work so hard to get to each other and, and spend more time with each other than you can do, or work so hard to figure out the best route is work hard this way, to connect with God, to be obedient to God, to ask God, what do you need of me? David said it this way, if there be any simple way in me, show me it. If you need to, to connect with God and move towards him, and it's amazing that you're moving towards each other in that process as you're moving up. Can I just share with you these last couple of things as takeaway this morning, and then I will have an invitation uh, for you. So if you have your notes, let me track with you at the end here. 
If you're saying this morning, man, Tom, that kind of hits us where we are. You, I mean, you don't even have to like verbally say it to your spouse. You, you guys know um, already. You might have bumped each other, somebody bumped another, you made eye contact, whatever. You know. And you say, I want to save my marriage. I want to be the testimony of the Leonards. I want to be what the ancient Hebrews understood a husband and, and a wife to be. I, I want Christ to be at the center and bring salvation to my marriage. I want to save my marriage. Can I give you just some takeaway points, some practical things for you? And then I want to extend an invitation to you. First thing is this. You've got to forgive and accept one another right where you are. You have to forgive and accept one another. But she's not like she was when I married her. So what? You've got to forgive and accept one another right when you're at. These are biblical principles that God puts in place for us to forgive. So you've been hurt. Guess what? It won't be the last time you're hurt in your life. You've got to offer forgiveness. Give forgiveness. You don't have to say it's okay. That's what we like to say in our culture all the time. It's okay. That's not true. But you need to say you're forgiven. Can we please get on a track to working on this? Forgive and accept. Sometimes that's the biggest hang-up in the marriage is to be able to forgive. In fact, the awkwardness is sometimes the hardest people to forgive are the people closest to us. Forgive and accept. Just secondly, confess uh, where you were wrong. For, confess to where you were wrong. If you were wrong, guess what? It's, it's time to confess. It's time, it's time to say that. It's time to say, look, I was wrong. Or admit to where you were wrong. I was wrong here. Well, why is it that we have to sometimes think we've got to keep score in a marriage? Like, I was wrong, but she's been wrong three times, so I'm in pretty good standing right now. Uh, how does that ever work for you? It never works good, does it not? Never works good. Because she'll just say, well, my three times were small. Here's a really big. So I mean, it just it never works out that way to be able to say, you've got to admit and confess where you're wrong. If you're wrong, you're wrong. You're wrong. If you've sinned, you've sinned. What good will come out of hanging on to it? What good will come out of trying to justify the situation? You gotta admit, you gotta confess where you're wrong. You gotta pray like you never have before. Pray like you never have before. If you're like me, I get so tired of the phrase or seeing it printed on Facebook otherwise. Hey, praying for you. We'll be praying for you. Pray for you. Pray for you. Here. Um, I want to believe in my core. Like everyone that says that is going really an earnest prayer, lifting things up and really praying, right? Maybe they are, maybe they're not. That's not the purpose of this, of this. But the purpose is here at this point, you've got to pray like you've never prayed. You've got to pray. Not just praying that God will do something, because guess what? God's already said he'll do something. He's already said I'll bring redemption to your marriage. I already healing, forgiveness. He's already said it over and over in his word, but you've got to change your heart. And up to this point, if your marriage is really rocky, guess what? Just keeping it inward and, and thinking on your own thought of, of your emotion that's pumping out or your own thoughts ain't getting it done. But looking to God and praying like you never have before, it starts to change your mindset. You start to look at things in a different way. That I get forgiveness starts to flow a bit easier than it did before you ever went and you prayed. You've got to pray like, well, he doesn't really want to pray 
with me. He doesn't like to pray. He may not. He may have an issue going on there where we need to give him kind of, you know, a little kick in the tail to get him going. But you can still pray. Each one of you can still go to the Lord and pray, despite what might be going on with the other. When both of you get surrendered in prayer, then look out, because redemption's on its way. Four, ask, is there anything God wants me to change? Anything he wants me to change. This may not be something like you're doing totally wrong. It not, may not mean you're doing something sinful. But they're like, for the sake of your marriage, your spouse who you love, you need to make a change here. Now, I visited Leslie at Starbucks several times. It was early on. I didn't really know her. So, you know, I do that where you just pop in where they're working. You have a little interaction. And they go, oh, hey, I'm a pastor. Can you buy that? You know, kind of thing. Or you say, oh, I'm a pastor. I don't know what you're saying. But... She enjoyed what she did at Starbucks, and she was good at what she did. She's outstanding at customer service, and that's a big part of it, right, when you walk into your, your coffee place? But they made a choice to make a change for the sake of their marriage. And it's not like God said, hey, if you give this up, I'll start issuing a check in the mail each week to cover that. Um, that's not how it came for them, but the marriage came first. You need to ask, what do you need to do to change? If it's Thursday night out with the buddies, guess what? You turn to your buddies and say, see ya, you know, I'm going home, I'm going to be with my spouse. Whatever it may be, ask, is there anything God wants you to change? And then finally, you got to seek help outside yourself. Guys, can I just speak to you a second? This is so hard for us as men, to seek any help outside of ourselves. We got it, we're good, we got it under control. It's just not always true. But seeking help. Now, I'm not saying, guys, you necessarily have to call down to the counseling office and set up a four appointments and those type of things. Though it may very well be that seeing somebody in the professional field that can most help you is a great step for you. But you got to get help outside yourself. you got to find a believer who you really trust, who is really mature in faith, who knows God's word is not just going to blow smoke at you, but will put you in your place if you need to be. you got to find help. Gotta let us know. Hey, I need prayer for this. This is going on in my life. These are some practical things. I want to offer you an invitation this morning. I would believe that in a group this size this morning, there are several of you that are struggling. Or you contemplated, you talked about this type of thing already. Or like you can see based on what we talked about, these little the little paths that have already been created in your life. And you're starting to see disconnect that you didn't even know where it was coming from yet. And I want to do something for you this morning. I want to pray for you. And you may say it right away because you're smart people. You may put the two and two together. Well, Tom, how long do I need to pray for? I want to invite you to tell me right now. And you say, well, there's no chance, Tom, in front of all these people. Listen, this morning, one of the most powerful things you can do is getting out of your seat. Coming with your, your spouse down here to the altar and laying your marriage before these, I mean, it's just stairs, but it's our altar. Laying it down here and just saying, look, it's not that we're ready to divorce, but we just know it's not tracking right, or we have been talking about this, or whatever. Come right down here and get prayed for and find redemption this morning to begin. Because again, your issue. Probably it's not so much a mirror, it's, it's a God, it's a Jesus Christ issue. 
what better way in front of the church family right here to start this path this morning? Is it a, a little gutsy? Yeah, I'll give you that. You got me a little vulnerable before us. But can I tell you something before I invite you to come? Somewhere around 2004, 2005, 2006 was my 10 year anniversary, so I know it was around 2004 and 5. Um, Shreya and I had never processed divorce separation because that was a non negotiable place. But on a morning like this, we would have we would have needed to be down here praying because it was off kilter. It, it, it wasn't tracking right. And the points I just walked through, the five points here, there was a few of those points where um, I haven't fulfilled those points very well. We would have needed to be down here saying, Pastor, pray for me. I'm going to just kneel myself before the Lord and get this back on track. And I will, I will speak to you, and I remember the day clearly, and I don't have time for this story, but in 2006, where like that cloud was lifted in our marriage entirely, and it's been a, it's been a grand ride for the last almost 10 years since, since that moment. So I want to invite you this morning to come and just get prayer. Nobody's going to look at you and go, oh, they're struggling, because every single person in here understands the time in their own marriage. So as, as Anson prays, our priest, our priest plays our priest team, our Amen Less have invited them to come to share a, a special song with you this morning. And maybe even the words of the song is what hits you the most. But I want to invite you to just come, come down to the altar. If you're here without your spouse, but you know this is you, we invite you to come down. We just want to have a time where I just pray over each of you in just a few minutes. So, God's altar is prepared. It's open. You come as they say.